Good evening, everybody, and welcome. We're so glad that you can be with us tonight in uh, a relatively cool room. So who left AC to come here? Wow, thank you. Who is here because your house is hotter than right? <laughs> a few of us? Well, we've chosen a winter scene to cool us down a little bit if you look closely. Uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're, uh, that you're with us this evening. Welcome to Living Waters Church. If you're a part of this community, it's great to see you. We're increasingly finding ways to be together, and this is one of them, so welcome. If you're not a part of the community and you're new or newer, uh, a special welcome to you, and we'd love to get to know you better. If you have any questions about how to get better connected, uh, there's a number of us on our pastoral team here. I'm one of them. Dave's over here. Uh, Ruben's at the back. Lynn's here. And you're meeting lots of, of friendly people. So uh, welcome. Uh, we are going to be recording tonight's session. Uh, it will be on podcast, so just be mindful of that. If you participate in Q&A, that's also going to be uh, online. Uh, but if I've yet to introduce myself, uh, we haven't met before, I'm Luke. I'm on our pastoral team, and welcome to GROW. Uh, let me share just a little bit of uh, housekeeping, and then we'll, we'll talk about what GROW is. Uh, as you know, uh, we don't have a mask mandate in, uh, in British Columbia, but if you feel like you need to wear one, feel free. Our team will be wearing them. If you need a washroom, they're down the hall, just to my right here, and there's ladies and gents in, in that direction. If you need a glass of water and you are getting too warm, there's a kitchen station right out here, and we're happy to serve you that as well. A um, little bit of background on GROW. Uh, GROW started actually in the pandemic. Uh, it started online through YouTube Live, and it is a space that we create uh, that's beyond Sunday for further dialogue about things that matter a whole heck of a lot to our church and to our broader society. Uh, it's not that these topics uh, don't belong in Sunday. These topics actually just demand more time than we can often spend on Sunday. So GROW is a place where we invite expertise to learn, but we also invite dialogue uh, to learn from one another. So when you attend or participate in GROW, you're usually going to hear from an expert voice and then have a chance to ask questions and to dialogue together. Maybe less of an expert tonight. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but you know what I mean with that. The, the jokes are going to start now, aren't they? So uh, for 2021, our church has three GROW tracks really quite simple. The first is the one we're talking about tonight. It's Jesus and Scripture. Uh, and Rick is joining us for those tracks as we move through the year. Another track we have is the Gospel and Equality, as we ask questions of equality and equity in our society and how that translates in Christian communities and beyond. And there's a number of people in our community that have participated in that. Uh, and also we have a track called We Are Kwantlen, where our church is on a long journey, uh, and particularly a year-long journey, where we learn more about uh, the particular indigenous culture in this area. So GROW was intentionally quite wide uh, as, a, as a learning space, and we've designed it that way. And that's the three tracks that we're looking at uh, for 2021. Uh, today, we're focusing on Jesus and Scripture, and the big uh, hairy question that we're asking is, uh, is Jesus the only way? Dot, dot, dot. Uh, our format tonight's really quite simple. Uh, we're going to begin uh, and hand the mic over to Rick at about quarter after seven here. And he's going to lecture and share for 45 minutes or so and, uh, and share some content. And then about around after eight o'clock, uh, we're going to then have a time for Q&A. 
So I'll shepherd that a little bit uh, from the front here along with Rick and uh, ask maybe a couple of questions that I've maybe jotted down. And if you want to jot some questions down and notes in your notebook or phone, feel free to do that. And uh, then we will open the mic. And uh, if you have a question, we're going to invite you to come over to the mic, ask it so we can actually capture it for our audio for podcast as well. Everybody can hear the question and then we'll, we'll engage it. And uh, Rick will solve all of your life's problems with uh, the questions that you have to ask today. Only if you pay. Only if you pay. Yeah, $5 a question, and that's how it works. Um, just a little bit about Rick before, uh, before he comes to share. Rick and Katie are a part of our church uh, that have been for a number of years now. Uh, participate in life groups and house teams and music and gardening and all manner of things. Uh, Rick is a biblical scholar, uh, history, uh, also in art history, uh, history in aeronautical engineering, history in drumming, history in just about everything. Uh, Rick taught at Regent College for over 20 years. Uh, his specialty is in the New Testament and particularly Israel scriptures in the New Testament. There's a particular focus for Rick in the book of Isaiah, particularly as it's found in the Gospel of Mark. He's not going to like this, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you were to go to a Bible bookstore or order the Zondervan um, study Bible, um, you will turn to the Gospel of Mark, and the commentator for Gospel of Mark is Rick Watts. Um, so we are very blessed to have um, a world-class scholar in our midst and have always put him to a lot of work over the years, and we're very grateful that he shares his time with us tonight. So uh, as you'll hear from Rick, that doesn't mean that his opinion is the only one that matters. Uh, it just means that we can really delve into some big, hairy questions today, and we're in good hands with her with, uh, with one another. So without much more uh, fuss, uh, we're going to hand it over to Rick and say welcome, and welcome to all of you. Let's give one another a hand, and thanks for coming out tonight. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. Great to be back, and uh, we really do feel this is our home, so we're just delighted to be back in the land of heat waves. We thought we left them all behind. We want our money back. Something's gone on. Um, so tonight, this is obviously a very short topic. We'll be done in about 15 minutes, and you'll be on your way. Not quite... Uh, just to give you some sense of the structure, three parts, so a good Trinitarian number, three, easy to remember, Matthew would like me. The first part, we're going to actually look at the question, uh, is Jesus the only way? And that's partly because every question presupposes it knows something of the answer. That's really worth tucking away in here. Uh, don't ever feel obliged to have to answer a question just because someone asks it it might be presupposing some things that you don't actually agree with. Right? So another topic altogether, when people want to talk about gender, they ask me a question about that. I'm not prepared to answer that until we've talked about what it means to be human. So just be careful what questions you respond to because they can presuppose some things that you might not actually go along with. So it's worth pressing back behind some of these. So that's the first part, 15 or so minutes. What's behind this question? Right? And that's where some of the really hard work's going to be, but that's all right. It's early in the evening. We'll get through that. And then, obviously, uh, why Jesus? Now, I would guess that many of the folks here are actually committed to him, so uh, it's obvious to you why that would be the case. But I'm not taking that stance this evening. I'm trying to remember what it was like to be at uni and just think, why in the world should I pay any attention to Jesus? Right? Um, maybe like most Canadians. So why? What's he got to say about this? And that will be the third section, what he has to say. So 
first of all the question itself then why bother with Jesus anyway and then thirdly okay given that we should at least I'm persuaded we should what does he have to say about it okay so I hope that's okay um, I've got the microphone and that's kind of how it's going to go I'm sorry to say <laughs> uh, the point is you don't have to be a Christian to engage in this conversation in fact you can be an atheist and not even believe in God I'm not presupposing any of that right all I'm presupposing is that you can see things that you can touch them and you can handle them right and if you're one of those kinds of people then this is a conversation for you that all right so hope that's all right um well again it's going to have to be because that's what i'm doing okay sorry um so going back to this first point every question presupposes it knows something of the answer i was chatting to my good friend dave the other night and he told me about a student pardon me in his class who would always say how would he begin i want to i want to know right that question question presupposes that you actually can know Dave might be able to say, well, actually, yes, Professor so-and-so has addressed this. Or he might say, well, that's an interesting question, but right now we can't. We don't know enough to know. Right? So that's what we're doing here, just getting back behind this question. Right? Uh, and the first one, let's, let's start with the last first, being very Christian at this point. So let's start with way. What do you mean by way? Is Jesus the only way? What do you mean by that? Uh, some people just love the journey. Right? ever heard that oh it's not where you go it's the journey that counts so uh the answer to that question is jesus the only way say to live the answer is obviously no in fact most people don't live in the way jesus would say you should so uh, whether that's a wise decision or not might depend on if you keep pressing that way question beyond just present existence what happens when we die lots of people wrestle with that question and there's one good way of avoiding by saying oh well, it's all over but who knows that <laughs> when i'm when i'm dead i'm just done oh really and you know this how okay it sounds more like whistling in the dark to me than any kind of reasonable judgment necessarily so you might think well way to right is jesus the only way to well where comes to mind uh nirvana any other options elysium for the greeks among us uh, christians will probably talk about heaven and so is Jesus the only way to where? What kind of thing you're talking about? What is it you're looking for? And as we've just discovered, we had a wonderful time in Sydney. It's a wonderful where, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And we had a lovely apartment uh, right on a river that ran into the harbour. Beautiful weather. And we made some really good friends in Sydney, but they're new friends. And new friends, as great as they are, are not like old friends. And part of the reason we've come back is because uh, what makes a place wonderful is not just the place, it's the people. And so we might actually want to think about that because um, you might recall that in the scriptures when it talks about Moses and Israel, God says to them, I'm not going to go with you because you're doing your own thing, but I'll give you the land. And Moses says, I'm not interested. We don't want the land without you. So maybe uh, the question isn't so much, Jesus, is Jesus the only way to where, but the only way to whom? And what whom do you mean by that, right? Well, God, of course, but hang on, what does God mean? A lot of things can go into those three letters. Uh, you might have discovered, actually, that it's a lot easier to talk to people about God than it is about Jesus. And one of the reasons for that is Jesus is pretty specific, right? You can do a lot of mucking around with God, okay? Uh, you can make him in your own image. 
Uh, he can be Marduk, he can be Zeus, he might even be reason or logic, you know, if you're a Greek philosopher or something along those lines. Um, but by the time you say Jesus, there's a lot more precision behind that, right? And even if you say Yahweh, and I think I'm not the first to do this, but a number of us are dropping the word God precisely because it's so vague. And Yahweh won't let you do that. Uh, Yahweh brings you up sharp, first of all, because it's strange. What does that word mean? And it's okay, if you two can sing about Yahweh, I can talk about him here. No, that one didn't work, okay. <laughs> do you know who you two is? Yes, some of you do. Very good. You're all my age, you should. So there are just some questions like that, right? First of all, in terms of that sentence, but there's an even deeper underlying one. How would you even know how to answer that question? Is Jesus the only way to? On what basis can I answer that? How would I know? I've never been there. I don't know what comes after. I've never experienced what comes after life. I'm still in the middle of it, right? Uh, what am I going to presuppose that will somehow give me the ability to answer that question? And it's interesting, though, because you often assume, oh, we can ask that question and blithely that we can somehow answer it. Really? On what basis? Now, the Greeks wrestled with this, and I mentioned them because they're part of our Western tradition, and one of their answers was reason. And they look at the world, and a very confusing world for them, earthquakes, lots of political troubles, they're trying to find something that's constant in all this change, and they come up with, okay, your mind can only really grasp what doesn't change. Now, that sounds very technical, but it's not really. You have an idea what a tree looks like, right? And you can recognize a tree. Even though no two trees are exactly the same, right? You're able to recognize a motor vehicle, even though motor vehicles look very different in their shapes and sizes over history. Right, so there's some notion of motor vehicle, there's some notion of treeness, and you can keep working up to things like, well, there's some notion of loveness or justiceness or something like that, right? There's got to be that, otherwise you have nothing to get a hold of. There's got to be something common to the tree that enables you to go, oh, that's a tree and not a motor vehicle. Pretty straightforward, right? That's not complex. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for things that don't change, and the only things that really don't change, well, they're the things inside your head because every tree's different and they're constantly changing. They start small, grow big, and fall over. A lot, apparently. Right? Um, I'm going canoeing in a few weeks, and not a few weeks, tomorrow. What am I talking about? Right? I went canoeing a few weeks ago, and a lot of the trails have trees across them, right? Trees keep changing. Nevertheless, you can recognize them in the midst of change. But the only reason you do that is because there's something in your head that doesn't. You got that? Is that kind of okay? It's not that tricky. Just, yep, good. Now, this is what they would call reason. And it all happens between your ears. And this became a huge problem. How do you know that's what's happening between your ears has any real relation to what's happening outside of you? And you'll often hear people talk about this. Oh, I'm, I just trust reason. Ever heard that? I just find myself, have you actually ever thought about that? Because there are some people who really have. There's a guy called David Hume. He's famous for writing a book against miracles. And another guy called Thomas Reed. And they really disagree with each other. They're trying to talk about how you bridge that gap between what's inside your head and what's outside. And even though they take different views, they both recognized that using reason alone, you can't even prove the existence of last night's dirty socks in the corner. 
Reason won't do that for you. You can't start with inside your head and prove that chair exists. You just can't do it. Isn't that interesting? So people say, I just trust in reason. Oh, really? Then that's not working when you actually look at that chair. You just sat on it. You didn't use reason. Something else is going on, right? Now, stay with me because this is actually really important for later on. Well, people thought, what about mathematics? Because, you know, triangles and number systems, they don't change. Boy, that stuff's got to be eternal. And uh, there was a chap who was getting a special award at Königsberg, and he'd set up this idea that we can actually get to the basis of all knowledge uh, using our number system. And a young guy called Kurt Gagel was giving a lecture down the hall in which he demonstrated that not only can you not prove the consistency of your number system, in fact, mathematics proves that you can never prove it's consistent. That kind of shot mathematics in the foot, right? We use it because it works. But if you know about mathematics, there are mutually exclusive geometries, and there's no way of resolving them. You just kind of have to take it on the face value that it works, just like the chair. You can't prove through reason it exists, but you're sitting on it. Same with mathematics, right? A little closer to home, there's a guy called Stanley Fish. You've heard of the postmodernist, right? Uh, I actually think in some ways they're friends of the gospel, believe it or not. Um, people think postmodernists don't believe in absolutes. That's not quite true. It depends on who you're talking about. But Stanley Fish would say, I believe it is always wrong to torture a child for entertainment. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I hold that view too. Right? He says, all I'm saying is there's no way you can prove this to another human being. And he is right. You can't get morality from reason. You just can't. And people have been trying that, and it doesn't work. Okay? Well, what about being a free agent? Well, I've got some bad news there as well. <laughs> uh, this is Peter Strawson argued this, that actually you can't establish that humans are free agents using reason, and we probably won't know until the whole universe is finished. Now, you don't have to get all of that. But I just want to say to you that people who say they just rely on reason, I think, I don't know that you've thought about this very much, or actually at all. <laughs> and furthermore, if you want to look at culture that really tried to do that, the Greek world, where did they end up justifying slavery, treating women as second-rate citizens, where they were elites and nobody else was? A culture that never changed. I know where reason leads. You don't want to go down that road. Right? That's just really important, folks, because parts of our culture are deeply committed to reason, and you even find Christians trying to defend the gospel on the basis of reason. Don't do that. Right? Don't do that. <laughs> because it's not going to work for you. We're trying to work out, how do we come to an answer to this question? One option was, well, reason will work. Actually, reason is a very thin read. It works well for some things, like your phone or aircraft, but questions like whether that aircraft actually exists, how you should use it, uh, it can't answer. It's mute. Right? Which is why I want to say at this point that uh, the reason the modern world looks like it does is not because of reason, it's because of the gospel. But that's another presentation, and I'd like to do that one night in the future. Uh, why the 21st century is more Christian than any other century we've ever seen. Uh, you know, we talk about racism. 
people don't realize that that's fundamentally a Christian notion. Go back to the first century. No one was appalled by racism. That's what you did all the time. We talk about equality. No one believed in equality. That's not the common attitude of human beings throughout history. We talk about justice. Justice back then meant keeping the elites in power. That's what it meant back then, not what we do when we talk about justice. So it's, it's kind of funny. We hear people talking about this stuff in the so-called post-Christian world, and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? The only reason that language means what it does is because you're more Christian than you realize, which is one of the reasons we'll come back and get to Jesus in a few moments. Right? This is why it actually matters. So, reason. No, that's not going to work. What about experience? Okay, everyone starts with experience, even the philosophers. They have to start with what they see. But then whose experience? Mine? What about my truth? Ever heard that stuff? Uh, okay, let's think about that. You're on Highway 1 heading to Kamloops tomorrow morning and what determines how you drive on the road? My truth? That's going to work out well. <laughs> right? uh, I'm an engineer. I know about designing aircraft. My truth has nothing to do with it. If that's where I'm coming from, it's going to end up very badly with a lot of awfully charred bodies. It's got nothing to do with my truth. If I want to do that, there are some things I have to submit to whether I like them or not. You can push that a bit further, right? You can stand at the top of a 20-story building and rail against gravity and identify as a bird and jump off, and that will work for a certain period of time. Right? And that railing will continue to a certain point when it stops suddenly and the only thing that's changed in the entire cosmos is one less anti-gravity protester. Only thing that's changed. Right? Now, I think that's part of my engineering background and it's helped when I get into humanities because sometimes I think humanities can be really a bit woolly between the ears. Well, they actually need to get out a bit and build a few things. Okay? <laughs> Just get away from ideas and, you know... Try doing some dishes in the kitchen. Let's try that for starters. Okay, I'm being a bit um, naughty here, aren't I? Yep. So, whose experience? Is it just mine? Okay, well, let's, let's try and get just to you. But to get to you, you have to exclude everyone else who's not you. So, you know, those other folks you don't know in other countries, just get rid of them because you're trying to focus on the real you. Um, even your friends, they're not the real you. We want to get to you, so get rid of them. And mum and dad, they're not the real you. And... We just want to focus on who you are. And by the way, language, you got that from someone else, so you better get rid of that too. Where are you left? Those journeys of self-discovery are paths to madness. Right? Yes, we're individuals, but that individuality is scripted in the language of our relationships. None of us exist to ourselves. Right? So it can't just be my private experience. There's got to be more to it than that. Now, just to help you realize that we, I still have the topic in mind, that's one of the great things about the gospel, the four gospels. They're not individual private experiences. They're talking about what was there and observable by all kinds of people from different races, different backgrounds, different cultures. Now, I don't think that any of the guys who are writing the gospels thought about this kind of stuff, but they kind of nailed it, actually. In terms of the limits of what humans can know, and you know what? We actually don't know a lot. Some of you might have heard of a guy called Socrates. Sometimes called the father of philosophy. What's Socrates known for? He's really known for pointing out how little we actually know. 
Now, this is a problem for us because we live in a culture where everyone's opinion matters. And I just think that's a plague. <laughs> I understand I'm much more Israeli like this. So two Israeli profs were teaching in California and they just couldn't believe how these Californians, sorry guys, seemed to think that if they had opinion, it mattered. And the thing is, you have an opinion, so what? Right? On what basis do you hold it? Right? <laughs> Uh, in Jerusalem, not so much. You have to actually demonstrate you have good reasons to hold an opinion. That's not really a North American view right now, right? Um, I believe. Well, I don't really care what you believe, <laughs> ultimately. I, mean, I want to know what's true, what you can point to, what you can defend. And, and, but, you know, the Bible's there a long way before Socrates. It recognizes, too, that, that there's a lot humans don't know. It's one of the great things about the book of Job, by the way, and it's dealing with an issue of suffering, which is really impacts everyone. And I was talking to Luke about this. Some of us think that um, if I could just sit down with God and have a conversation about this, we could sort this thing out, and now I'd know why I'm suffering. Right? And that often underlies Christian answers. The reason you're suffering is because, da, 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 and the underlying assumption is we can explain this. But what if that's a mistake? What if that in itself is the seriously mistaken belief? It's like saying, okay, let's put a three-year-old with an astrophysicist and try and explain what happens when two neutron stars collide. There's no chance of that happening because the three-year-old just isn't in the same universe. And what if that's us in this world? What if the truth of the matter is we know far less than we thought we do? than we think we do. And can I suggest to you that might be a good place to begin, which is the reason for this long beginning. You know, what I'm really trying to do here is just pull away. Um, how do I put this in a way that's polite? Uh, it's to help us understand that we really don't have the basis for knowing as much as we thought we did. There's a lot that lies outside our ability to grasp. And can I just suggest to you, if you've lived for any number of years, you've likely to have encountered that, right? Lots of things happen that you cannot explain and just get beyond human understanding. Okay, so then. Yes, I am trying to bring us down a peg or two. As Kierkegaard said, if you're looking for something, how will you know if you've found it if you don't know what it is you're looking for? And that's kind of us, really. You know that famous story, King Edwin, I think, in his court in Northumbria? And there's a Christian missionary there. You might know this story. It's in Bede's Ecclesiastical History. And they're debating whether they should respond to the gospel. And a bird flies through the hall, so the story goes, flutters around in the light and flies out the other end into the winter storm. And there's a lot of winter storms in Northumbria. (laughs) And uh, one of the leading men stood up and said, this is us. We have no idea where we come from. We're in this small space for a short time, then we're gone. And if this Christian message can help us get more of a handle on what's going on, then we should follow it. And I, I think this is a much more accurate view of where we stand. What if we really are just blind people groping in the darkness and that are having iPhones and high-tech cars actually deceive us into thinking we know a lot more than we do? Now, I've labored that point. I'm going to leave it there. I'll come to the one in whom you're probably much more interested, and that would be um, Jesus himself. And, you know, why even talk about him? 
What's he got to do with any of this? I'm not trying to be irreverent or cheeky. But, uh, why? Right? Now, uh, let you into a secret. I do quite a bit of thinking in the shower. Um, and uh, I see some smiles out there. Maybe other people do. Anyone, should I? No, I won't ask for a show of hands. Okay. Uh, and I was pondering this and I thought, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, we start with this question and there are presuppositions underneath that that somehow we can ask this question uh, because we've assumed some things underneath. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't start here. Jesus doesn't start by saying, I'm the only way. That's not where he begins. And I'm becoming more and more of a scriptural nut at this point. Um, I really do want to follow Jesus as closely as I can just because I really don't trust myself anymore. Um, and that's not where he begins. So we're going to talk about where he begins in just a moment. Uh, why Jesus? Well, a couple of reasons, even if you're not a Christian. Is there really any other figure that's been more influential than him? You might not like it, might be upset by that, but seriously, whether you like him or not, he's a big player. And as I alluded to earlier, I think you can trace modernity back to him. Uh, you wouldn't have the modern world were it not for the gospel. And I'm more than happy to talk about that. Right? And part of the reason I think we miss it, if you'll forgive me, is we've just narrowed the gospel down to having his sins forgiven right? and maybe going to heaven. And those are all good things. Right? But things like recognizing that change is a good thing, that you know through the senses, that cities should be dynamic, that all people have value, they're all basically Christian ideas too. And you can't live in the modern world without holding to them. So I do want to encourage you. Um, I, I get a little saddened when I hear that you know, Christians drift away from their Christian belief because of pressure around them. And I think you need to be reminded what you've got here. Because I don't think you realize, uh, you know those people in England who wear patches on their patches and drive beaten up Land Rovers and you know those kinds of guys and they're not like the new money who have to show off in Lamborghinis these guys can go dress like this because they already own half the country and can I say that's us we already own half of England we have nothing to prove to anyone actually that's already been done but that's another topic for another time so Jesus and yes he does have some things to say about this but uh, how do we know about those things? How do we know about him? This really comes down to actually whether you can trust the four Gospels because they're our sources. Now, notice the Gospels. They're not philosophical ideas. Um, if we were over in England or in Europe, I could actually take you to a place and if we got on well enough with the person looking after it, I could show you through a perspex box these Gospels on papyrus. You can see and touch but not handle well, not even touch, I suppose. Right? That's getting back to experience. You can actually see this stuff. That's why I'm going back to them. I'm talking about the Jesus they refer to. Because we really have no access to him apart from that. Right? And just a little word to Christians here. I've been thinking about this in conversation with some friends. That clock hasn't moved. Has it stopped? No, it's still going? Right, okay. Oh, that's okay. Good, great. Yeah, wow, it's, I'm watching it, so I uh, want to make sure I'm done in the right time. This is good. Uh, I have some friends back in Australia who are really keen about the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I was thinking, guys, I don't get this. You talk about the Holy Spirit till the cows come home, but for you that means words of prophecy, end time stuff, I'm just being completely erect here, right? 
words that people have had in visions, all that kind of stuff. And I said, okay, well, that's, be that what it is. But we do know that there are four documents clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit about Jesus, and you know diddly squat about all four. <laughs> so what, what are you doing telling me you care about the Holy Spirit? We don't actually care about the stuff we know he's given us. <laughs> if you really care about the Holy Spirit, how can you not care about being immersed in the Gospels? How does that work? Right? Uh, and that's really not an issue that's emerged here, but it's just in some stuff that's going on back home in conversations. I'm thinking, how... how how weird can that be that there are people who say they love Jesus and they care about the Holy Spirit and they wouldn't know their mark from their Matthew? That's like, how do I put that together? But it's critical. You've got to know this stuff if you're going to know Jesus, it seems to me. Now, here's the big question, right? You've got to assume that they're telling us the truth and that's a big assumption. And we can't do that tonight. But uh, I would love to another time. <laughs> I, I shouldn't do this in public it's really naughty I just uh, it's it's putting Luke under pressure here on uh, you know I, I've spent a lot of my academic life looking at this and you know uh, all I can say is I find it actually impossible to explain how the gospels arise unless something like what they described or very much like what they described happened it can't have come about in any other way. So um, I can't explain why that is. I'll talk about some of those things in just a moment. But I have absolute deep, deep confidence in the Gospels. And I say that against the background of all the questions I've raised about reason. All the questions I've raised about personal experience. Right? I'm looking for answers. And I get these four stories and they're there. You can see them on papyrus in Greek. Right? Soot and gum, there they are. How do they come about? And the only way I think you can explain them is that what they described actually happened. And if that's true, oh my goodness. So I just want to say to you, for those who are following Jesus, you need to know you have not come to a Christian version of Lord of the Rings. Jesus is not some uber Frodo or something like that. Right? No, we're talking about historical biographies that are making claims that this stuff actually happened. Okay. Now, what do these biographies talk about? Well, one of the first things is that Jesus is Jewish. How does that impact our question? Well, what do you know about Jewish people? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. What are they known for? They don't believe in any other gods, and that's one of the things that marks even the early Christian movement. They share that with their Jewish origins. The one thing you can't do as a Christian even as a Gentile has become one, is go to a pagan temple and participate in those meals. That you cannot do. You cannot accept that there are other gods. Uh, Larry Atado, recently deceased, wrote a book on this, The Destroyer of the Gods. He pointed out that people in the West don't realise the reason we don't believe in other gods is precisely because of the gospel. So when Dave's trying to do chemistry at Pacific Academy, he doesn't offer a small pinch of incense to the god of chemistry before he starts. You do that in antiquity, but we don't do that now because they have no existence. We know that. That's part of this Jewish heritage. So when we're asking the question, the way to whom, from the Jewish narrative point of view, there is no other whom except Yahweh. There is no divine. There's only Yahweh. Him is the creator and everything else. 
That's what marks them out. That's what makes them different from every other option around them. And can I just say, it's really important for Christians to remember that. Your fundamental starting point is creator and creation. That's where you start. That's the fundamental starting point. Everything flows out of that. Get that wrong and something's going to go strange somewhere along the line. But keep that one in view. So, Jesus, Jewish, one God only. Now, again, if you're familiar with the field, you'll know that for the last hundred years, people have been working very hard to try and discern how much of the Gospels we can trust. And what's often happened is people secretly have a picture of the Jesus they want in their back pocket, and anything that doesn't fit that, they get rid of, right? Oh, Jesus would never say that. Oh, really? And how do you know? (laughs) What, you have special access somewhere that the rest of us can't see? Ever heard people say that? Jesus would never say that. Oh, really? And what evidence is that based on? And in the end, well, I wouldn't like him to say that. Oh, well, that's a very different thing, actually. (laughs) And uh, pardon me for being so rude, but what made your preference the centre of the universe? (laughs) (laughs) Should we be worshipping your good self? Maybe you think that. I don't know. But one of the things you can't escape, and they realise that now, is whatever Jesus was known for, it was mighty words and mighty deeds. He spoke with authority. That was just astonishing. The one they were more nervous about was that Jesus was known for doing mighty deeds. Now, again, don't want to labour this, but please don't use the word miracle. It's not a Christian word, and it's not part of our universe. The biblical language is mighty deed. It's an exercise of authority and power. That's what we talk about. If you go down the miracle road, you're going to get caught up in breaking laws of nature, and there's a whole lot of baggage with that stuff that just doesn't help us. I mean, you know laws of nature aren't real, right? They're just human conceptualizations. You can't put you know, some tree in an earth and a bit of water in a test tube right, in a reducing environment and come out the bottom with E equals MC squared. Not going to happen. Right? They're just human depictions of what normally happens. Well, the whole point of the Gospels is, yeah, somebody came along and did what was not normal. And their response is, we don't care whether it conflicts with reason. We saw this, we touched it, we handled it. It's back to experience again. And not just privately. Even his enemies recognized he was doing this kind of thing. So, you know, it gets a little cheeky, but um, all right, let's have a a discussion about is Jesus the only way? And uh, Fred has an opinion. Well, okay, um, I might be prepared to listen to you if you can heal as many people as Jesus did. Oh, by the way, get yourself crucified and come back, and then we're kind of on the same level of authority here. But um, I know that sounds a bit cheeky, but it's just a way of reminding us that um, we are really out of our depth here. And here's someone, according to these four accounts, and I really think you can't explain them unless he did this, who is known for doing astonishing and amazing things. Kinds of things that no one was expecting. And one of the issues underlying this is that no one was expecting, that's the critical thing. Why would you invent things that no one was expecting, not even you? And so much of what goes on in the Gospels is counter to what people were expecting. One of those was... In Jesus' day, and you were talking about faithfulness to Yahweh, what would you point to? Jesus would be pointing the way to Torah, right? If you know the Jewish world, Torah. But that's not what he does. He points to himself. He calls people to follow him. Have any idea how bizarre that is? That's why modern thoughtful rabbis say, look, our problem with Jesus is if he's a good Jew, he'll be pointing to Torah. He doesn't. He points to himself. That's a problem. 
That's staggering that a human being would say, actually, you need to come and follow me. No rabbi would ever do that. And then according to these documents, he does things that only Israel's Yahweh can do from their history. He tells the sea what to do. And people go, well, I'm not really sure about that. You know, I remember I was at a conference a number of years ago and um, there's just a few of us there and there was, pardon me, uh, dropping names, but having her marmalade on toast was the professor of divinity from Cambridge University and on the other side was this guy. And, um, this guy made some snide remark about the Gospels and, you know, and I said, oh, forgive me, but how do you actually know that he didn't tell the sea what to do? And I don't think he'd ever had someone say that to him. And uh, he almost choked on his toast. Right? And then there's this huge explosion. And, you know, mostly storm and fury, not much weighty argument. And I think Mourner, the professor, almost choked on her toast as well. You, you don't do this at English breakfast with marmalade and tea. Right? So it's a wonderful little moment. Uh, what turned out later on was that uh, we got chatting a bit later. And you know, what was underneath that fiery response? Well, it turns out his auntie was involved in a charismatic Anglican church and strange things were happening and it really got under his skin that he couldn't actually, he didn't know how to deal with this stuff. We ended up praying together. We had a great time at the end of that. So, but I do want to say there's been a bit of a sea change where, pardon the pun, that <laughs> um, now it's quite common in my field to people who recognise that whatever else Jesus has done, he must have been healing people with great regularity. Right? Healing the blind, the deaf, and they it just you can't just dismiss those as legends. It's just it's too much there, they're accepting that. They struggle a bit with the sea, that's the marmalade bit, and they struggle a bit with the feedings, but you can see there's been a massive shift where they're going, okay, the world's stranger than we thought. More things can go on. So Jesus does this, but he's not just doing that. The fact that he tells the sea what to do and feeds people, that's what Yahweh does at the Exodus. So there's something going on there about who Jesus is. Okay? According to these documents. Is he the only way? That question's still there, but who is he? What do we know about Jesus? Well, he does some pretty amazing things, such as we've described, but he also forgives sins. And when he does that, what do his opponents do? You know the story? In their hearts, they say, ah, you can't do that, whatever the Aramaic for that is. Only God can do this. And how does Jesus respond? And he, knowing their thoughts, that's the zinger, because only God knows what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Trey cool. <laughs> you can't forgive sins. Oh, really? I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> um, I would argue Satan doesn't know what you're thinking, by the way. Only God has access to that. So, is that all right? Um, what's going on in your head, it's you and God all the time. So, just be aware of that. There's always two present in those things going on up there. Do we need a time for an altar call here? I don't know. Uh, One or two other things. He plans his death at Passover. What kind of person does that? Just stop and think about that. Given all that Passover means, right? It remembers that great Jewish day. That's when they're hoping for their deliverance. And here's a guy who, rather than coming with an army, says, I'm planning to die on Passover. Who does that? Seriously, think about that. Who does that? And that somehow this is going to be related to changing history. Like, really? Where does that idea come from? Then he gets to the meal, and uh, this is you know, another really interesting thing. You know, they've been celebrating this meal for over a thousand years, and it's all about, you know, this is the bread and the, the, other, the lamb and all that kind of stuff that they do. And, 
And Jesus says, yeah, okay, I'm changing the menu. And by the way, this meal's about me. Now, that in itself, I mean, just who would invent that? What first century Jewish person could even imagine that anyone would do that with that supper? Now, you have to forgive me because we'll sometimes talk about the Lord's Supper and I think we have no idea how explosive this is, right? Because we're so used to doing it. <laughs> but this meal is rooted in this identity of this guy who says, I'm changing the menu. Oh, really? <laughs> By whose authority? Right? And uh, he has ways of responding to that. Oh, stand up and walk, mate. How do you argue with that? <laughs> and that's not cricket, using an English term, right? It's... At least let's have a debate about exegesis and interpretation. Yeah, forget that, stand up and walk. What do you do with that? You can't deny what you see and hear and touch and handle. Okay. Well, and then of course, as you would know, um, the cross doesn't kill Jesus. I hope you realize that. That's why Pilate staggered. He can't believe that Jesus has died so soon. And then people say he's weak from loss of blood. That Oh, come on, give me a break. These people are experts at extending torture, which is what crucifixions are. Right? That's not what goes on. He gives up his life in the same way he could give life back to others. Now, just think about that. Where in the world would that idea come from unless something like that happened? Right? Just a few hours in, he just lets it rip. It is finished. And he gives up his life. Right? So uh, that would be the end of that, were it not for something called the resurrection, <laughs> which is why we're here, right? And even that itself is remarkable. I had a student come to see me from UBC once uh, many years ago, and he was a bit interested in Christianity. And uh, I wanted to find out how interested, because I'm not actually interested in folks who just muck around the edges. Okay? If, if you're into it, then be serious, but I'm not prepared to waste your time or mine. And, you know, uni is sometimes full of those dilettantes, you know. They love the debate, but they're never really trying to resolve anything. So I just wanted to find out if that's what was going on. Uh, I said, okay, I'm happy to talk to you about this. You willing to do some work? And he said, oh, yep, okay, good. So here's some books to read, right? Six, seven hundred pages. <laughs> I'll see if you're serious. And he was, right? So uh, we had this conversation for a few months, and then I gave him a book by Tom Wright on the resurrection of the Son of God. And I said, no, you need to read this, and that's about 500 on its own, okay? And... Uh, you serious about this? Yes, I am. Good. Okay. I'll keep going with you. So he came back about a month later and said, so what do you reckon? And he was a little quiet. <laughs> he said, well, um, well, he said, I, I think the resurrection must have happened. I said, yep, yeah, good, good decision. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> oh, maybe I should follow Jesus. Even better decision. Let's go. <laughs> and uh, he's involved in Christian work now and been involved in youth groups and things like that. So... You see, what we're talking about, folks, is stuff we can see and touch and handle. That's what this is about. It's, you've got to watch that word faith because we sometimes pick up on Hebrews as though this is all about believing stuff for which there's no evidence. If that was true, you wouldn't have four Gospels. The reason you have four is because people experienced this not on their own. Other people saw it. They bore witness to this. So... Think about the implications of this. Along comes the resurrection, and no one's expecting this. No one is expecting a single resurrection in a world where nothing has changed. That is fried ice for Jewish people. No one would invent this. So, you want an answer to this question? Who are you likely to trust? Me? Justin Trudeau? <laughs> right? 
Who's going to be able to answer a question like this, given how little we know about most stuff? Well, then Jesus, in these remaining few minutes, has some things to say about this. I and the Father are one. And by Father, he doesn't mean some kind of nice, cuddly Father figure that you and I imagine that we'd like to have. Father is the deeply relational name that Israel has for Yahweh. Okay, so just be careful about this, folks, because the temptation is in our world to turn God as Father into the Father I've always wanted and dreamed about. No, 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 no. He's the Father who He is. And that's the Father I really need, not the Father of my imagination or my longing, right, or emotional brokenness or any of those kinds of things, as real as they might be. No, no. He's who He is, and that's the kind of Father I need. And Jesus says, I and this Father are one. That's probably not new to you. Most of us here, I imagine. He says he comes from God. I'm the only one who has seen God. And of course, by God, he means Israel's unique Yahweh, not anyone else's definition of what this God thing might be. This is the Yahweh that you learn about in the Scriptures, who doesn't look anything like the gods of the nations. I've seen him, he says, which is not just seeing, but that's to know in a deeply profound way. He says, to have seen me is to have seen the Father. To have seen Jesus is to see Yahweh. That's what that language means. Hmm. He doesn't say that of anyone else, just himself. No one comes to this Father but by me. Right? But you've got to remember, he doesn't start by saying that. This is in the context of all these things we've talked about. He's demonstrated his credentials to say things like this. And so, you know, I think that's why in John's Gospel, what that's really about is a trial and the readers are on trial because here's the evidence and the question is, what will you do with this testimony? We're not actually sitting in judgment on Jesus, determining whether we think he's the path to life or not. In John, no, no, no. His life sits in judgment on us. He says, that's not why I came. Right? In this way, God has loved the world. I've come not to condemn the world, but to, but to bring life. But not to believe is already to be condemned. Because you've turned away from the stuff that's right there in front of you. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Right? He's come to bring life, but, but we don't sit at the same table and have a discussion about what this should look like. Right? Uh, you want to do that? Well, you want to try and do some of the stuff that he does and then maybe. But no, this is much more like Job. You know, at the end where Job says, I've spoken of things I do not understand. I think that's what this question is all about ultimately. We don't know and he does. Why do people not believe in Jesus? Well, this is pretty staggering. It's not for want of evidence, Jesus says. There's two reasons. We're evil, and we don't want that to be known. <laughs> Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, it's just like smack. <laughs> oh, this is too important to muck about with. And the other one is we prefer honour that comes from people rather than from God. These are two reasons why people don't come. 
And I remember when I gave a series of talks on Wake and Trust the Gospel, at the end of it, um, it began actually with people in that week saying, you know, some of them, they're not sure about their relationship with the Lord or church or anything like that. At the end of it, one of those guys said, this is so compelling. Why doesn't everyone believe this? Because the answer is not about compelling. That's not the issue. There's not a problem with the evidence. The problem is my deeds are evil and I don't want people to know it. Or I prefer the honour that comes from people rather than God. They're the two fundamental issues. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so you might want to keep that in mind when you talk to people about the Lord. Uh, not that you get aggressive or nasty, but there are all kinds of reasons underneath as to why people won't do this. And Jesus is probably the one who knows best because he can actually read people's hearts in ways that you and I can't. Well, only God has life, Jesus says, and the Son, and to whomever the Son wishes to give it. And of course, that's this Jewish notion of the creator and the creation. And what's Jesus saying? On the creator side. So, in answer to our question, is Jesus the only way? Folks, there's no other game in town. There's no other reality. It's not as if there are other ways that are actually out there that exist. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And beside him, there's nothing. That's right? a slightly different way of thinking about it, isn't it? <laughs> right? And he invites us to put our trust in him. So as we just finish this off, and I've probably got a minute over, I think, um, or two. Some things never change, but we're almost done. Uh, for those of you who've chosen to follow him, I just want to encourage you just to repeat this. You have not followed cunningly devised fables. You just need to know that. Right? Uh, you're following stuff that actually happened and if you were there, you would have seen it and touched it and handled it too. And you can make your choice. You want to follow Socrates? Good luck with that. Right. Want to follow, you can name whoever else. Good luck with that. But if you care about life, who's the one person who's demonstrated that he has the power over life and death? Now, you may choose death, and that's fine. That's your decision. You can choose death. That God will let you do that. But that's not what Jesus came for. He wants you to have life. So I want to encourage you with that. Uh, the other point would be this. There's a chap called Kevin Rowe. That's an A, not an E. Kevin Rowe. And he wrote a book called One True Life. And in it, he started, up, started off by taking on us scholars he said, you know, these scholars, and referring to people like me, okay, uh, we think we can float aloof above everyone else and kind of have this encyclopedic God's eye, scholar's eye view of reality and, you know, we were somehow able to sit back from all of this. And, and he just said, this is a nonsense. Every human being's life is invested and enmeshed. Right? You don't get to stand outside this. And then... The one true life came from this conviction that both the Stoics, big Greek, Greek philosophical moral movement in the first century, and the Christians had in common. And that was, the Stoics would say, you could never know the truth of Stoicism from the outside. You had to bet your life in order to find the truth. Which means if you got into it and you're only kind of, what's the word, half half-bottomed, I think it's probably the appropriate kind of... If that was your commitment, right, you'd never know the truth of Stoicism. You had to be fully committed for your entire life, one true life, and only then would you know the truth of this. And he said, it's the same with the gospel. Right? 
If you're going to do the Jesus thing, folks, don't hang about on the edges. Don't do that. It'll be miserable. You'll never know the truth of it. The Stoics and the Christians both knew you had to jump out of the plane without the parachute. You had to do that. It had to be total and complete commitment. So I want to say to some of you, if you're feeling a little bit like, I'm just not sure how I feel about Jesus. I've been with him for a bit, but it's not really working for me. The question I come back with, have you actually given him everything? Have you really trusted him with your entire life? Has he become the focus of everything about you? Like Paul, right? He has no identity apart from being in Christ, which means you've probably got to know something about the Gospels to know what that means, right? I love that about Paul. Everything I thought that mattered, I realized is just done. There's one thing I want. I want to gain Christ to know him, which includes two things, his death and his resurrection. And you've got to bet your life on it. And the good news is, I'm prepared to guarantee, not on the basis of who I am, but on the basis of what he does, that when death finally comes, you're going to discover that he spoke the truth. And for you, it's just the doorway into an eternal and ever-expanding life. Who would not want that? Okay, we're done. Thank you. Have an old call. Okay. <laughs> Rick, if you want to have a seat for a second, and everybody else, why don't we stand up for a bit of a stretch break? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. This is the largest cup in history. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, uh, if you need to take a washroom break as well, now's a good time. We are going to begin a Q&A based on some of the content that we heard and uh, the questions that you are bringing in. Uh, again, as we said at the beginning, uh, this is about uh, more than one person speaking. Uh, so, just let's give a little stretch to this way, stretch this way, touch the toes. We have bodies, so let's make sure we remember we have bodies. And uh, take a seat when you're ready. We'll get into questions. Good stuff. The, Primary um, school. <clears throat> just a reminder for format. Uh, we're going to be here as long as you'd like to be, uh, but roughly 45 minutes or so uh, to, to an hour. If you need to leave at any point, uh, there's a lot of reasons why we might need to go. Feel, feel free to do that, uh, but I'll, I'll keep us certainly under, under 9 o'clock just so you know where we're at. Uh, the point of sessions like this are, are to get what we get from uh, a teaching, a talk, uh, but the, the real meat might come, uh, the, real, the real discussion points might come, uh, some gems might come when we ask our questions. So we really want to say uh, that every single question is welcome. Uh, and that's why I have some doozies for you, Rick. And we're going to start there, and I might be a bit nasty. Is that okay? Go right ahead. Okay. Um, so the... <laughs> I'm going to start with a couple of questions, just to get uh, the pumps primed a little bit. Uh, and then when we're ready for questions from the floor, there's a microphone over here. And so please come on up uh, and, and share. And we'll go, we'll go from there. So thanks for sharing, first of all, Rick. Thanks for spending your life caring 
and actually being um, on the path and wanting to know. Uh, we're going to come back to this at the end, but one of the things you said is, I want to follow Jesus because I don't trust myself anymore. And I think you said, I increasingly don't trust myself anymore, which, uh, which intrigues me actually quite a lot. The first question that I think we'd like to begin with is um, you've leaned heavily on, um, on the Gospels being what we can touch, what we can see. Yeah. You've got some connections. You could take us to a place where someone could point to and show us actually what was written down somewhere around the first century. Here's my problem with that, um, and why I think a lot of people's problem with that is, um, what if they just made it up? What if they had other reasons to make it up? Why, why, like, what, what can you tell me from history and why we're sitting in the repercussions of the world you say the gospel has created? But what, what if they just yeah. made up? Don't they have a lot of motives? Don't they have motives for power? Don't they have motives for control? Don't they have motives for, <laughs> for well, a lot of reasons to make it up? And didn't a lot of people make yeah. a lot of stuff up? Like you said, Lord of the Rings got made up. Yeah. So for the person wanting to know the truth and us saying, well, you got to believe the Gospels because they're so strange. Well, just because they're strange doesn't mean they're true. So what if, the, what if they just made it up? Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, come to the next sessions. We're going to do this over two or three nights, right? Um, yeah, we don't give you that out. Give us something more. Uh, it really is important, right? Um, and I don't want to... How do I get, get into this? Well, first of all... Um, when we say make things up, there's a genre in which people do that, right? But it's a first century genre. So you might have fairy tales, but fairy tales don't belong in the first century, right? They're a later European development. So you've got to think historically here, right? So, oh, the Gospels are just fairy tales. No, they're not. That's impossible. We know what fairy tales look like. They weren't around in the first century, and the Gospels don't look like that. So they're not fairy tales. Well, maybe they're just myths. No, they're not. We know what myths look like and they don't look anything like those myths. And by the way, people don't create myths in the first century. The myths come from much, much earlier. Okay? Oh, okay. So, again, there's all these underlying assumptions that people have about they just make it up. Well, hang on. No, you, you know, okay. You've got to know something about the world in which this is happening. And, in fact, uh, the closest analogy we have are biographies that are based on eyewitness testimony. And there's lots of things that... Right, uh, point in that direction. So I think that's probably a general consensus. They're not exactly like biographies, they're longer, and Jesus gets four. No one ever gets that many. No one gets four. That's stunning. Certainly no rabbi, and Jesus is Jewish, no emperor gets four. So just that historical fact tells you something about how impactful this had been. So you can say you don't believe it, but you have to do it in terms of these guys are claiming to tell history and they're lying. And then you have to show why they're lying. Okay? And, and we could do all of that. Um, so if you're talking about a biography, and uh, even if you are inventing things, you have to ask yourself, what is it likely that people would invent? So if somebody turned up with a papyrus document that they said was written in the second century BC, and in it there was something that looked suspiciously like a Boeing 787, what would you think? I'm an academic, and one of the things I have to work with is students who, you know, as Eugene Peterson used to say, um, people tell lies and they don't necessarily stop just because they become Christians, right? <laughs> uh, and that might be a little bit of a shock to start off with, but five seconds reflection, go, yep, that's true, okay? 
And you sometimes had that problem with students when they write papers. And um, I mean, you've read enough papers. After a while, you can tell when the style's not theirs. All right? And the thing that really then annoys me is I have to spend hours trying to find out where they got that quote from, which means I'm not in a good mood when it comes to giving them their grade. So the word is, do not plagiarise, because we will tell, right? And uh, but I think because of that, that sense that we all have if you're informed, then you have to think about, okay, how likely is it for a Jewish person to invent a story like this? And, and it's not as if you've got people doing this for Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon's doing something over here, and Rabbi Benjamin, you know. No, 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 right? Um, everyone else is doing pretty ordinary stuff, and all of this really weird stuff is concentrated on one figure and one figure alone. How do you explain that historically? Forget about God. Just how do you explain this historically? And uh, people have been trying to do that forever and it just keeps pressing back well probably he must have done something like this they finally admitted that with his mighty deeds but just the pressure of the, the evidence just pushed them finally uh, it's one of the most powerful arguments for the resurrection i was at a presentation sbl big scholarly zoo for all the weird people like me to get together internationally and tom wright had just written his book on the resurrection they had a panel one guy i think was an atheist scientist and he was asked to comment. And uh, it was interesting to watch, you know, some of the biblical guys are all the different, oh, you know, this and that and making up. And, and the scientist goes, well, um, actually, I think it's pretty compelling. I don't know what to do with it, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, which is interesting. So we, I'm happy to do that in more detail if you want to. Um, but there's just so much going on about the life of Jesus that would only make sense in the Jewish world, but it's counted everything that people expected. How does that happen? Based on your experience, how does that happen? Is that what novelists do? No, not in your life. Right. And this is not a novel. This is a first century historical biography. So uh, I think I'd say to people, to be kind, um, when they say, oh, it's all just made up, you know, my first assumption is you really don't know actually what's going on, and that's okay. I'm here to help you. But uh, that kind of question really only comes from a profound lack of understanding. But you've got to be gentle about that. So. And I know that's not where you're coming from. But sorry. <laughs> it's a common question that we, that we yeah. have, and it's a common question that's out there. And, yeah. I, and I, maybe you can share a little bit, uh, just off of that question quickly, about um, the, like historically the kinds mm -hmm. of evidence we have in terms of papyrus. The things like, well, we have some record of what so-and-so, such-and-such a philosopher might have said, and yet yeah, we have yeah. so much more of the record of gospel. Can you talk about historical impact, like really nuts and yeah. bolts, yeah. in terms of like how much of this has oh. emerged and how quickly and how reliable it is in the historical oh, okay. record? Right, yeah, that, that's another big question too. It, it is, but um, a couple points maybe. Yeah, okay, so one of the things is, um, just to preface this, I, I was in China a couple of years ago teaching at Wuhan, actually, of, of all of which we now heard, right? <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And you know, I've been, been teaching there at the uni for a week and uh, we had an evening session. And uh, it was interesting. I'd, I'd said to them in this context, we talked about the biblical worldview and we talked about, they know modern China and they know the Ming Dynasty because that's their history. And I said, okay, tell me, um, you've seen the, the scriptural view with all, some of the things I alluded to, like change, dynamics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you know the Ming Dynasty. Which of those does modern China most resemble? And it was just a stunning moment as the realisation dawned. And uh, one guy, a PhD candidate, said, we're far more Christian. 
And I said, yes, you are. You can't be in the modern world without that. That was a real incredible moment. But then one of the other guys was sitting there. He looked at me and he said, "Um, can I make an observation? I said, yes. He said, you're not a theologian, are you? And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) And he said, you're an historian. I said, you betcha. That's why I believe in Jesus. So uh, you're going to hear me talk a lot about history. I'll just say this. Theology is not a Christian word. It was invented by the Greek philosophers to be the rational science of God, meaning God behaving like they thought he should. And I just, I don't think it's a word Christians should use, actually. Sorry, just to be really blunt about it. You know me, kind of shrinking by it. But so the history thing really matters. You've got to put this stuff back into its history. So in terms of Jesus' mighty deeds, right, people have been looking at all of that. And from about 8 to 400 BC, there are all these bizarre stories about different Greek figures, Empedocles, uh, um, Pythagoras, he had a golden thigh. Did you know that? You never learned about that. We only met triangles, did you, right? So... Um, Pythagoras, he of the geometry class, has been photoshopped to make him more acceptable. He was a very strange guy with all these bizarre narratives surrounding him. But what happened is with the um, emergence of philosophy as a rational science, they slowly began to get rid of some of that odd stuff. And so from around the 2nd century BC, there's very little in the Greek tradition of people doing extraordinary things. And the one guy that might be an exception is Apollonius of Tyana. But there's a whole debate about that because the records we have about him come from a time when Christianity was already making it a big hit in the world. And of all the figures in antiquity, Apollonius's mighty deeds are the ones that look most like Jesus. But the book about him comes 100 years after Jesus. So who influenced who here, right, is the question. So what you've got is this, in the Greco-Roman world, this declination of emphasis on mighty deeds was much more about philosophy. And I, I don't know, I'm a bit cheeky here. I wonder sometimes, you know, Pentecostals, how do we hold these two together? Right? Are we becoming more about one thing and we've lost some of the mighty deed stuff? And just a little thought to think about. You want to hold those two together? Okay. Um, and in the Jewish world, uh, almost very few. I mean, how many prophets do mighty deeds? Very few. Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not the big writing prophets. No, Ezekiel, no. Right? There's a couple to do with Elijah and Elisha and, of course, Moses. And, but, you know, they're not common. It's not standard practice to be a prophet to do that kind of thing. And how many does David do? Zip. Right? And yet we talk about Jesus' healings as messianic signs. They're not messianic signs. Messiah does nothing like that. Right? That's why no one says when he heals someone, oh, you know, you're the Messiah. No, he's not naughty little boy. Right? Um, <laughs> no, I didn't get that one either. Okay, good. So, um, right. <laughs> sorry about that Um, so then they have a couple of rabbis Kanina Bendosa and uh, Honey the Circle Drawer and a few little stories around them you know extending a piece of wood that was cut too short or you know the wife burnt the bread in the oven and that was restored and drawing a circle and having rain come down but nothing like the stuff that Jesus does and there are some 37 um, could be 38 or less Unique stories about Jesus doing mighty stuff. So what you have to explain is, in the Jewish world, when no one's really expecting this and no one's really doing it, and in the Greco-Roman world, where that stuff has kind of dropped off the horizon a long time ago, how do you suddenly explain, in the middle of all of those trajectories, this explosion of a guy doing stuff that no one was expecting? How do you explain that? Just think, okay, these guys are creative novelists. Okay, give me one example in the Greco-Roman world where a novelist does that kind of stuff. 
and they're not writing a novel, right? And you don't have to believe in God. I'm just doing history here, right? But you've got to explain this. So those kinds of things, right? And then there are questions about, you know, the text and all of that, and you know, I don't want to bore you with all of this, but we, I think the earliest copy of Plato we have is half a document, and it's a 1,000 years after Plato. Half a document, a 1,000 years after Plato. The New Testament, you know, 400 years after, it's just there are hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts. If you're not going to trust the Gospels, you can't trust anything from antiquity. And we're just awash in all our evidence for all of this, and that's another ongoing. I don't want to bore you with all of this, but I, I could go through it. Um, I just have rock-solid confidence in this stuff. It doesn't mean there aren't questions. Of course there are, right? Did Judas hang himself or did he fall over? No one really knows. That's not really explained. He's going, well, we don't know enough to be able to answer it, right? And what really happened at the anointing at Bethany? There's some strange things going on in that story, in all the Gospels, right? We, we don't know enough to answer. So I'm not saying it means there'll be no questions. Of course there's questions. What in life doesn't have questions? But if you think about it historically, ultimately, it's as secure as anything you've got, I think. Right? I don't know, look, I, I'm, no, I'm, very I don't helpful. want to go on and on because I know nope, I could. <laughs> very helpful, very helpful. That's, I just do there's something there, so we want to pull that out a little bit, and we probably will explore it more later. Second question coming from a different angle, and yeah. this will be my last one, and we'll open sure. the floor just to, to get it going. So please... Be bold, ask your question, yeah. and be bold, not just for yourself, but for the people that you, yeah. that you know, right? Ask the question. Um, so here's, here's my concerning question, Rick. Um, I know of people that I love very much. Yeah. Um, there, there might never be in a place in their life to really be exposed to the kind of stuff that yeah. I've been exposed to. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm really concerned mm -hmm. about a lot of people right now and in history who never had the ha chance mm -hmm. to even hear about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Like, and they followed other ways. Mm -hmm. So are they, are they, are they hooped? Yep. What, about the, what about the village people in Nepal yep. from 200 years ago? Are they yep. just, yep. does God just go, well, I'm sorry. Yep. The Christians didn't do a good job of bringing the gospel yep. to yep. you, so you're, you're, you're hooped. What and, about and those people? Yeah, it's a really important question. And depending on what your view is, and you know, Christians have different views on this, you know, whether you think the world's 7,000 or you know, 14 billion years creation old, whoever, you know, um, that's a lot of people who've never heard. But um, one of the things that historians know you cannot ask, Joy, counterfactual questions. Historians can only deal with what actually happened. You can't really answer the what ifs. History is just too complex. Right? So I hear all of that, and I, I really do. Uh, but all I know is the stuff that I have happening in the Gospels and because of the way Jesus relates to Israel's scriptures that those events that it talks about, they happen too, right? And it was Israel and Egypt. What about the people that were living in China at the time? Uh, we're not told and we shouldn't presume. And I, why we're not told that, I'm not sure. I'd be speculating except to say that as Job discovered when it comes to suffering, he can't assume he's going to be privy to all things. You know, so that song, that old hymn, by and by I'll know all about it, by and by I'll understand why. Who told you that? Where does God ever say, you know, Rick, eventually I'll explain myself to you and you'll get it. And I'll go, phew, now Rick accepts me because it all makes sense to him. I mean, seriously? 
So what do I do in response to this question? Well, because of who Jesus is, I think he's in fact Yahweh among us. You can learn something about God's character. And no one ever accuses Jesus of injustice or of not showing mercy and compassion. So the only thing I can say is, when it all finishes up, I don't think there'll be a single voice that says that was unjust. Now, what that outcome looks like, apparently, and I'm of the view that there will be people who are destroyed. And, and the real question, though, is to the people who hear, because when Jesus talks about the people who hear, he says of us who hear, narrow is the path and few there be that find it. He's not talking about the others outside, he's talking about the people in his own day who get to hear his preaching. So much more the pressing question is, I've heard, what am I going to do about it? Which is why I finished with that note at the end, right? One true life, are you all in? Are you all in? Because we've heard. Now, we're called to share it with others and, you know, um, when you're doing that, let it be out of love. Don't, don't betray the gospel by manipulating, coercing. Don't do that kind of stuff. So I think there's an impetus. You want to share this because of what the Lord commands us to do, depending on your gifts. And not everyone is an evangelist. I hope you know that. Right? Right? Some have a gift and it's obvious and others don't have that gift and that's obvious too. Right? So <laughs> there are different ways to do this. Uh, but in the end, you need to know that God's got it all in control. So that this shouldn't be driven by a sense of anxiety, um, trying to get, you know, notches on my barrel, don't do any of that kind of stuff. Be obedient where you are, reflect the character of Jesus in doing this. And in the end, the one who is good to all and has compassion on all, all that he has made will not change his character on that last day. So you're saying two things there. One, as we look through Scripture, which centers on Jesus, be, be convinced of God's character as seen through Jesus of compassion and mercy. Mm -hmm. And two, mm -hmm. uh, maybe we're taking on anxiety or burdens of concerns that, that, yeah. that are beyond us mm -hmm. and we have to ask with what we've heard mm -hmm. to, some, yeah. Yeah. to some degree. Is that, is that a summation? Yeah. Okay. Rick is not as important as Rick would like to think sometimes. Okay. okay. <laughs> I've got my little yeah. space and that's okay and that's good. Yeah. And you'd be pleased to know that. You know, I will not be judging you on the last day. You're allowed to show your pleasure and relief. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You're in good hands and they're yeah. not mine. Yeah. <laughs> so those are two kind of wider questions. Yeah. Floor is open. Who wants to kick it off? Come and ask your questions. Please, this is the time, time to do it. And be punchy if you want to, right? Don't, don't, um, yeah, come on if you up. can't ask the tough questions here, where yeah. can you ask? Bye, guys. Yeah. Ciao. Good Grace stuff. and peace. Yeah. Come on up. Right on. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. Round of applause for the first question. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, if I could make it just like a, a clarification question mm -hmm. and then a more question that I think will sure. take some um, difficulty. Um, <laughs> the first one is the clarification on, I think you said, we don't want to believe because we are evil and we don't want others to know it. And I think I understand that. And yeah. I think that's mm -hmm. a little bit more self-evident. Mm -hmm. The next one was... Um, that we care about honor from other people and not we and we don't care about honor the honor of god essentially yeah. mm -hmm. and i didn't i didn't quite understand that and i was wondering if you could just oh. elaborate on that a little bit and then the next question's totally different that's okay so, so do you want to do the second question now or you just want to you happy to stand no or? no i'm happy to stand okay i should stand too yeah. out of respect <laughs> I can, I can sit in the oh okay thank you yeah. <laughs> Gr really great questions by the way thank you those yeah. are awesome um both of those are from john 
Uh, and they're in response to tense situations where Jesus says, you know, well, he's dealing with the opposition he expresses, or he feels, I should say, and, and both of those answers are there, that people seek the honour that comes from humans and not from God. Uh, and for him, if you're seeking the honour that comes from God, you'll, you'll be drawn to him, you'll do that. That's the hallmark of someone who really does want to, know, want to be honoured by God. They'll see what's going on in Jesus. So underneath that is idolatry. Right? Um, whether that's to do with your status or, you know, I'm the teacher of the Torah or I have this. You know. And Nicodemus is an interesting character in that he starts out, John's brilliant like this. He has a few characters that get developed at Nicodemus in particular. Nicodemus starts out by saying, you know, oh, Master, we've seen what you've done, and we know that you must come from God. And Jesus is going, oh, that's great. I feel really good about that now. <laughs> and within you know, five minutes, it's, oh, hang on, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't know this. And it very quickly just turns Nicodemus upside down. Right? Um, no, you have to be born again. Everything you thought you knew is going to have to be up for grabs here in what I'm doing. And then Nicodemus eventually comes into that, right? And he has to learn, and he is the voice in the Sanhedrin that, that risks all their opposition by saying, you know, speaking up in Jesus' defense as best he was able. And, okay, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I think I understand that a bit more. It's, it's more of a root issue of, you know, not being grounded in our, well, being too grounded maybe in who we are and not being willing to see God's, God's yeah. honor and, yeah. and, and working. Yeah. Okay, um, second question, which is, you know, yeah. kind of a chicken and egg problem. You talked about being all in and... Um, and I, I've always kind of seen that in, mm -hmm. in my faith or whatever mm -hmm. I have of that. And the challenge for me is always, it seemed like a chicken and egg problem. Like to be all in, I'm, I feel like I'm the type of personality that needs to truly believe in, in a deeper level than just my head. Yeah. And so where does that, you know, how do we, how do we become all in? You, you know, we either yeah. are all in and then we can realize the truth. Yeah but we cannot realize the truth until we are all in. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, and I think faith is a lot of paradoxes, but I'm just curious what you have to say That's on that. Excellent question. Yep. And this is that first meaning of way. Uh, to learn to walk in the ways of the Lord is a common biblical language um, expression. And then in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew and Luke follow that, you have a way section where Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. And that's all characterized by taking up your cross and what that looks like example so um, they're with him and they're they're having all kinds of issues stop these people they're not part of our denomination no no they're demons in your name shouldn't happen right or you know uh, they've got all these things going on arguing about who's the greatest who has the most campuses whose church has the most people and all that kind of stuff and nonsense that people get involved in and he's talking about his death and they're all trying to get um, but they're following him even if they don't get it they're following him and I think that's the point to make. It's not that we'll ever get it. This is the Lord of all creation. Like, really? I'm going to get that? <laughs> what? Okay. What are you thinking? But it's more to do with, will he get more and more of me, right? And that's a journey. But you're with him, and that's the sign that you're there. And, and you'll know the point when you're bailing. You'll know it. I won't need to tell you. The Holy Spirit will be working on you and he'll keep at it and he'll keep at it and then there's ways of danger at some point he'll stop and you're warned about that too, but it won't be. I mean, this is not something you just fall into. You'll know about it, okay? And so if there's that deep love, Lord, I want to learn to be like you and of course it's going to be growth. It's going to be messy, you know? 
we're wobblers. I think one sermon, wobbling is what we do, right? Yeah, but as long as we're following and walking with him, and that's okay, that's what matters. And there's no image of an ever-ascending, steady climb. That's not what it's about. It's all relational with its bumps and all that kind of thing. But that's, I think, what it means, right? And, okay, one way that might help you, um, it used to help some students, but just imagine at this point that there was no one else in the room and uh, the, the whole thing had gone black and then there was Jesus in front of you. Right? And, uh, and I'm talking about the Jesus of the Gospels with his love and compassion and he's come to... And Sorry, might I use your name? Is that okay? It's, um, John. Jonathan, yeah. And if Jesus looked at you, Jonathan, and said, Jonathan, what do you want from me? Right? What do you want? And my guess would be that you just look at him, tears in your eyes and say, I just want to be like you. He's got you. It's all cool. <laughs> he knows that, right? And I think sometimes we don't really know ourselves as deeply. You know, we do all this other stuff, but actually when it really comes down to it, we want to be like him. Isn't that the moment when we're most vulnerable? I just want to be like him. We might even lie on the floor in the church. I just want to be like you, Lord. And that's what you don't want to lose. Right? And uh, if he sees that, he's got you, right? <laughs> so you're okay. You're in good hands. <laughs> I really mean that. I'm just, I have deep, deep belief in the truth of this, that he's the one who carries us. And uh, that's... Uh, <laughs> so just Thank coming you. off that, if I can riff on that a little bit, Jonathan Lake, what if that's not all I want? What if, what if I look at Jesus and honestly in my heart right now I go, I'm torn. Yeah. There's a lot of, th I'm divided. Yeah. There's a lot of things I want, Lord. And I, yeah. I, I think there's a percentage of me that, mm -hmm. if I can boil it down to percentages, mm -hmm. that wants you. But in truth, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm pulled in a bunch of different ways. I'm pulled by my anxiety. Yeah, I'm, pulled yeah, by, yeah. I'm pulled by my lust. I'm mm -hmm. pulled by my want for security. Mm -hmm. I'm pulled by my want for control. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to believe. Yep. Help my own belief. What, yep. what do we do with that? And what does Jesus do with us when that happens? Oh, well, I want to believe. Help my own belief. It's clear what he does with that, right? Is it? Tell us. Oh, yeah. Um, he acts when that happens. That's what the guy says. And he casts out the unclean spirit and, the, you know, he meets that. So are you saying that's enough for Jesus? Um, it's a beginning. It's a start, right? And so that's the thing, right? This is relational. It's history. It, this is why, pardon me, it's why I really don't like theology because theology is timeless. That's what it's meant to be. It has no notion for change and growth. That's not part of its system. Remember we talked about the Greeks, the mind can only grasp what doesn't change. That's why they really didn't trust history because it's full of change. But that's not relationship. God reveals himself in history. So this is dynamic. There's change. There's all of that in there. And to come to him and say, Lord, you know, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the beginning. We're on our way, right? And be prepared to have him work through that, right? That's what all relationship is about. And, you know, if there's stuff going on and you're wrestling with things, I mean, you know the Holy Spirit speaks to you about that. And that's okay. He still digs around the plant and puts water on and trims and prunes. And he's not done with you. So I'm not talking about perfection, right? Uh, that, that's not really what we're after here. It's this journey in following him, and he will bring us through to that point. We're trusting him to do that. Yeah. Right? But, but you and I both know there comes a point when I really do decide that I don't want him and I want to do this other stuff. We know what happens. People just end up drifting away. And, then, right? and, and Paul's aware of that. That's why he says to people, right? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. He's not kidding about that. You can't really stand on your own. You'll get picked off. 
we're part of a body, we're a community. Right? And, um, and you know, can I just say, we come to this community not because I get something from it, I may or I may not. It's because it's the family to whom I belong. And if I keep cutting myself off from my family members, you've seen what happens in regular life when people do that. They just drift off into the nether regions and they, they're lost. You can't do that, right? Just keep coming, be committed. Right? Mm. Gather together with the people of God, hear that word, let it wash over you, right? The exercise that discipline of commitment. And the Holy Spirit has something to work with, okay? And, uh, and he can start dealing with that, I think, so. You told me a story once when you were out in your front yard and you saw a neighbor mowing oh. his lawn. Can you tell us that story? <laughs> yeah, um, it's a bit of a fib, but it's all right. It's uh, the parable of the lawnmowers. Uh, yeah, so uh, we lived in a street in um, Surrey where these two guys were just epic lawnmowers and uh, they were a bit of a competition really as to whose lawn was the... And we didn't need street lighting because the lawns would grow, glow at night. Right? It's just... <laughs> What is it, uh, Homer Simpson? Who's that guy with the nuclear? Anyway, it's a bit like that. Uh, and they would mow their lawns with theodolite precision. It was, the rest of us would look on in awe and wonder. And one day, um, one of these guys' little daughter came out with a plastic lawnmower and, and she was trying to help Dad and she crossed the line and he slapped her and bawled her out. Right? Now, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> but some of us think that's what God's like. Actually, Dad was thrilled that she was out there. There's time to get the accuracy. Right now, all that matters is she's got a plastic lawnmower and she wants to be with Dad. That's the best place to start. And I think, in a sense, that's what Jesus says, right? Take up your plastic lawnmower and follow me. Right? <laughs> so you, you understand, folks, it, it's, I do talk about where our hearts are coming from, but you've listened to Paul. All those things I've counted but dung that I might know him, that I might gain Christ. And if that's boiling away in your heart, if right now you're thinking, that's really where I'd want to be, then it's good. That's something he can work with. It's when that's no longer the case that it does happen. People like Demas, for love of this present world, fall away. It happens, right? So the thing that Jesus constantly calls for is endurance. It's the one who stays firm to the end. There's no point in following him for 50 years and leaving in the last five. Whoops. That's the serious side of this, right? It, it's, it's a real call to commitment. One true life. And you do that as fully and as... Uh, and, and it's not, again, it's not about perfection in that I'm going to do everything perfectly. If that was the case, Jesus wouldn't need to die for me. It's not that. It's really, does he have my heart? And in those places where I'm struggling, am I still prepared? Lord, I want to give you this part of my life too. So it's not to become a legalism. Don't do that. Because that'll easily happen and it'll kill you. It's not about that. Think relationship, right? I think that's the best metaphor. Uh, I'm rattling on again, Luke. I'm sorry. sorry. Other questions? The floor is still open. I've got a couple more myself. I'm happy to ask them, but others that want to come up? Ter do I see Teresa yeah, coming? Please, yeah, far away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Teresa, come yeah, on up. Yeah. Welcome, Teresa. Good to see you. Yeah. And again, Let you don't have to be polite. I mean, it's just, if you can't ask the hard questions here, where can you? Right? So just push back if you need to. Yeah. Thank you, Rick, for Hi. sharing. Um, can you uh, speak to the name Yahweh? I've found oh. recently that for me, using God, that, that term, like just recently I, I've realized that that, I keep trying to put, I keep thinking that I can figure him out, 
and yeah. put God in this nice little box. Yeah. And I've, I've just recently thought, I think I should use Yahweh because my, my years of being a Christian has enabled yeah. me to think I can box him up. Great. <laughs> so tell me what you know about the name uh, Yahweh. Cause well, I'll try. Thank yeah. you. It's a great question, really. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, um, no one's really sure the name Yahweh comes from, at least in terms of, you know, Hebrew has consonants and usually three, sometimes two. You know what a consonant is? It's, uh, it's not A, but it's, it's not the vowels, but it's the others, okay? So um, it looks like it comes from the verb chaya, which means to be. It looks like it comes from that, but there are some odd things that go on, so it's, we're not really clear. And uh, You know, it could be I am who I am, but it's an imperfect, so I aming who I aming. Right? that I've always been I aming who I aming and will continue to I aming until the end of I aming. I, no, that kind of, it's just, Hebrew can do that kind of stuff. So, uh, but the, that's just kind of the grammatical stuff. But the really wonderful moment is when God calls Israel out of Egypt. He says to Moses, and this will be the sign you'll worship me on this mountain. Uh, and there's all kinds of interesting echoes of parallels between the pyramids and what goes on at Sinai. That's a whole other wonderful thing. Uh, but he shows himself to be the creator by undoing his, uh, Egypt's created order. So all the stuff they thought their gods did, Yahweh just undoes them. The night bleeds into the day, frogs come out of where they should be, just all kinds of... And it's, it's Yahweh who does this. So then he brings them through this incredible creation moment at, um, at what I think is the Reed Sea, and it's, the point of that language is this is believed to be the dwelling place of Apophis, the chaos monster. And Pharaoh, being in the embodiment of the god, the sun god, his job, and there's some debate about exactly how that works, but every day was a recreation moment because he'd have to go into the underworld with two fire-breathing cobra and defeat Apophis so the world would be renewed the next day. Right? And, oh, by the way, what does Moses' staff become? Right? And who's watching this? It's just absolutely brilliant, brilliant stuff, right? Well, it's in the context of doing all of that that they actually have the name Yahweh revealed to them. Right? And, and uh, actually, God had said this to Moses earlier. He said, look, Abraham knew me as El Shaddai. No one's really sure what that means. It's a difficult name. But never as Yahweh. And what God says to Moses is, I'm going to reveal myself to Israel as Yahweh. And a couple of things happen there. One is they realize he's the creator. Right, so they're standing at this sea and it's dark with the Egyptians behind them and their massive army and Pharaoh with this serpent in his crown that kind of represents his power over creation kind of thing. And then in the darkness, what happens? Light shines, right? And they're standing by this deep, right, this sea, this dwelling place of the chaos monster and the wind begins to blow and what happens to the sea and what appears what does that sound like what does that sound like sounds like Genesis 1 what if Genesis 1 comes because of what happened at the Red Sea and not the other way around what if it's at the Reed Sea where they really learn that Yahweh is the creator they were taught that Pharaoh did this but Yahweh does it and that's what informs Moses' account in Genesis 1. Now, that might be a little different from what you're used to thinking about, but hey, it's me, so we're okay. Right? 
Um, so he does that, and then they cross the sea. They have this wonderful dance, and then there's no water, right? And they, they, they think Yahweh's going to kill them, and they try to stone Moses. Right? So Moses runs off to the tent of meeting. Yahweh, Yahweh, help, help, help. And then Yahweh says, okay, you come with me in front of all the elders. That's a trial scene. And then bring that staff with which you struck the Nile. Why that? Right? Why not something else? Right? Okay. And so what happens is they go out in front of all the people and it's a trial scene because Yahweh's been accused of betrayal and attempted genocide. Right? His reputation's on the line. And this, this is the bit that no one really knows what to do with. It's interesting. Um, Yahweh says to Moses, you come with me and I will stand on the rock at Horeb facing you. Now that Horeb rock is the place he first revealed his name as Yahweh. That's where the burning bush was, right? And he stands on that rock and then what does he tell Moses to do? What's he meant to do with the staff? He's meant to whack the rock, right? And you know what's going on there? Because they've just seen Yahweh as the creator and in the Egypt they've just left... They had a notion of the creator God standing on the back of a golden calf or something like that. Right? The calf represented kind of the physical presence of the creator God who stood on its back. Right? Now, you, now, this is obviously scholarly stuff. People will debate it. But I think it makes the best sense of what happens at Mount Sinai. They're not worshipping other gods in that sense. They've just seen Yahweh cream them. No, what they're doing is creating Yahweh in the image of the gods of Egypt. And that's the thing you want to watch out for, folks. How often do we do that to Jesus? Right? Who gets to call the shots around Jesus? Him or me? Right? That that's the kind of idolatry that's being spoken about. So Yahweh stands on the rock. You know what that language means? He's identifying with the rock. So what's Moses doing? Moses is carrying out execution on Yahweh. But the difference is, whereas Egypt had turned this river of life into death by drowning the children of its saviour in those waters, Yahweh says, you think I'm like the gods of Egypt? Whack me and see what happens. And he bleeds living water for his people. That's what Yahweh means. This is a God unlike any other. And then they get to Sinai and they're still doing their thing. And no one would have denied Yahweh. He would have been completely justified in destroying them entirely. No one would question that. That would be justice. But Moses, this is amazing. Moses goes up the mountain and says, Lord, I've been watching you. Think about your reputation. Think about what the Egyptians will say. And then there comes this stunning moment that's a real problem for lots of theologians because the truth can't change and Yahweh actually relents. He changes his mind. And then you have to make a choice whether you're going to do philosophy or follow Yahweh. Right? Whether you're going to do history and let God do what God does or sit in control, well, it's got to be rational to me. No, 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 no. And the stunning thing in that moment is when God relents, he does it because a human being says to him, what about your reputation? What about what this means? It's an incredible moment and Yahweh relents. It actually says that. He changes his mind. Later on in Jeremiah, he actually says to Jeremiah, I don't care if Samuel or Moses stood before me, I am not changing my mind this time. Into exile they will go. But there he does. 
And that's where this wonderful text comes from in Romans, where it says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. That's not saying that God's decided in advance, you're in and you're out. What it's saying is, God shows mercy based on who he is, not on who we are. And that's what they learn at Mount Sinai. That's what Yahweh's about. He's the God who shows mercy. Mercy is never earned, it's never merited. And even in this moment of incredible, heinous betrayal, he shows mercy. So... What Yahweh means, they're seeing stuff that Abraham had never seen and they're learning something about who this God is. Last kind of poor illustration, uh, when I'd finished up in England, um, you know, in their schools there's only one professor uh, and they sit you know, in the chair at the top of the faculty. Everyone else are lecturers or readers. In North America, everyone's a professor. It doesn't mean much, right? My dog's a professor. Kind of, okay. <laughs> but, you know, in England, there's just one at the top of the tree and everyone else is kind of around it. And um, I just finished my doctoral thesis. And, sorry, I passed the exam. And I was going out for tea with Professor Morna Hooker. And she was the, um, in the chair at the school. And uh, we sat down and um, we're just chatting about things. And I said, oh, Professor Hooker. And she stopped me and said, Rick, it's Morna. Now, I don't know if you get what that means, but that was a seismic change in our relationship. What she was saying is this is no longer professor and student, this is colleagues. And we've remained friends ever since. And I think that's partly what goes on with Yahweh. Getting that name is giving them access to a relationship. And that's why Paul can say we can come to the throne, and it is a throne, with boldness and confidence. You're coming to the Lord of all creation, right? And this is what characterizes him. He'll bleed living water for us. And he's a God who's characterized by mercy and compassion. So I don't know if that helps, but they're just a few things that just make the name Yahweh just stratospheric for me. I mean, a little moment at the end, I should note this. So Moses says, um, after Yahweh does this, Uh, There's a statement where Moses says, um, may the Lord go up with us, all right, Uh, although we are a stiff-necked people. And there's a little Hebrew word there, or particle, key, right? right? And and it can mean although. So in that case, Moses is saying, look, I know we're a bunch of ratbags, but, you know, please come up with us. But I think actually it should be translated because. May the Lord come up with us because we are a stiff-necked people. I don't know about you, but I need a God like this because I'm a stiff-necked brat sometimes. And I need a God who'll stand on a rock and say, you think I'm like the gods of the nations? Whack me and see what happens. I desperately need a God who, when I deserve to be destroyed, says to me, I'll have mercy on him, I'll have mercy for the glory of his name. Got that? So that's why we follow Jesus. We want his glory to be known. It's not about us. Paul gets that, right? There's no God like this. I want that to be known. And that's what governs our lives, Jonathan. It governs our business decisions. I'm still trying to learn to let it govern my driving habits. We're working on it, right? (laughs) The Lord has sent Katie in my life to help, right? But I am stiff-necked on this matter, right? So pray for me. But, But that's what we're doing. This is all about bringing glory and honor to this one. Yahweh. Rattled on again. Last call for, uh, for another question. David, and then uh, we'll wrap up soon. Thanks. Don't have to run, but you look great doing it. <laughs> uh, thanks, Rick. Yeah, just um, 
I, met, I was thinking before this talk more based on the title than how it actually panned out. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the great achievements of uh, Western civilization is that for the first time, I think, in the world's history, we've really achieved an effective multicultural society. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned how the gospel overturned racism and, you know, mm -hmm. that in the ancient world, racism was just a reality, and yeah. now we know it's wrong, yeah. even if we're sometimes guilty of, you know, yeah. Yeah. putting ourselves as the norm. But I'm thinking about, like, when, as Christians, if we're evangelicals, we believe that Jesus is the only way to God, that he is God, that yeah. he is Yahweh among us, as yeah. you say. Yeah. But how do we position ourselves like what posture do we take in a multicultural society where we don't want to alienate our neighbors who are made in the image of yeah. God, who have different gods, different yeah. ways, yeah. and different ways to God. Yeah. Um, so how do we, like I know some of the words that are bounced around are hospitality. You know, we need to be hospitable mm -hmm. towards people of other faiths or people with other religions, but how do we be missional, like, mm. like, like, just to put it bluntly, converting people to Jesus or whatever, right? Like evangelizing. Yeah. How do we be missional while mm. at the same time being respectful of this wonderful achievement that we have in a world where, you know, Jesus is not yet seen as fully Lord, like yeah. in, he's not recognized as fully yeah. Lord. Yeah. So we have this reality where yeah. people have different perspectives. I just wonder if you yeah. had some That's advice about yeah. that, because I, yeah. I see a lot of my students at Trinity are kind of like reluctant to really take a stand mm -hmm. on G, mm -hmm. like being proud about Jesus mm -hmm. in the face of this pluralism. So I just wondered yeah. if you could speak. Yeah, to that. thank you, David. Um, well, there's a couple of things I uh, a couple of things I pick up on is um, you mentioned the impact of the gospel on the world, and I think we've lost how rich that is. And, but I think once you get that, you stop being defensive, right? Because you already own half of England, right? It's won already. The gospel's already won in so many areas. You don't have to fight or, you know, defend this anymore in that kind of way. I think a lot of us just don't really appreciate that, right? So we constantly feel like we're on the outer and we don't realise, what are you talking about? We've won, right? But that's another time, okay? So I... I I just feel incredible confidence about that. And I've had experience of traveling with people, yes, planes, trains, and automobiles, indeed, right? discussing these things with complete kind of, if you'd say, rank pagans who just when they hear it, like, this is amazing, okay? And um, of course, you'll get pushback from some people, but uh, so there's that. I think to get rid of the defensiveness is an important thing and to realize that actually a lot of what's rich in our cultures come from the gospel. Secondly, I'm not sure we are truly multicultural, right? Uh, because you can't. Right? Um, cultures have different values. Right? There are some cultures where women need to walk 10 feet behind their husbands, right? Well, when I became a Canadian, the magistrate said to a certain group of people, this does not happen in Canada. Your wives walk beside you, right? And I'm, I'm going to affirm that, right? I'm going to stand for that and say, no, right? You, uh, I'm going to stand against the culture that says that you need to exterminate all kafirs. I'm not going to, no, I'll stand against that, right? So... Uh, you know, unbelievers. So I think we've got to be careful about the multicultural thing. Not all cultures are equal. Sorry, they're not. We don't like to say that because of all kinds of stuff going on, but the fact is we all make judgments all the time about is that person nice, are they caring, are they compassionate, or are they awful? And that can be independent of culture. You'll find people like that in every culture, but not every culture has actually brought as much life. doesn't mean they're all bad except for one. It's more complex than that, as you would know. That's life, right? 
But I think it's just terrible and a mistake to say they're all the same. They're not the same. And I think we need to be able to have a conversation about that one. There's a reason why lots of people love to come to Canada. And to be blunt, it's not because Canada is fundamentally an Islamic country. I'm not being anti-anyone. I'm just, this is the truth of the matter. That's why people love coming to these countries, right? doesn't mean Canada's perfect. We've got our own, haven't we? Our own blood on our hands with some issues. But to me, it's just like having an adult conversation about some of this stuff. Why do people want to come to the UK? Why are they attracted to European nations as opposed to... There's got to be a reason for that, and I think in many respects it's because of the impact of the gospel, and it's been a tough battle, but that's happened. Uh, the second thing I'd say is it's not really about me or them. If Je- what Jesus is is true, then uh, he's going to be his own... Uh, So that language of respectful is an interesting one. Right? Uh, I want to treat people with dignity and respect. Of course I do. Okay? But if I look at Jesus, sometimes that respectfulness means telling people, the reason you don't come to me is because your deeds are evil. And, you know, and I say that. Did I just say that? So I'm just... I'm trying to explore around these issues. We use this language, and I know it's out there, and it's what we're meant to be as Canadians, but I'm thinking, who told me that, and is that really how the world is? Okay. Is, there, is respectful actually the right word? Should I be saying everyone's made in God's image? Where did the word respectful come from? Who said that? No one believed that in antiquity. Why are we believing it now, and where did it come from? Well, maybe what's happened is we've used a word that's lost. It's grounded us in the gospel, and now it gets used in ways that become oppressive or dangerous for people. Okay. So I'm not trying to upset apple wagons here, but when I said I, I really do need to rethink my language, I keep having to ask myself, where does that language come from? Time's almost gone, but one of the great learning moments for me in, in, um, during my doctoral studies was one of my professors said, you know, be really careful about using non-biblical language. And that's because language is embedded in culture. And you use a word, and it's not just that word. It comes along with the aunts and uncles and offspring and Uncle Tom Pomley and all, and a whole cultural mindset. So I keep pushing back on this. Right? Hang on, I need to think about that. Gender. I really don't think Christian, uh, gender is a Christian word because at bottom it implies I get to determine who I am. And that's not a Christian view. And that's not to say that people don't have issues they're struggling with, but why start with a word that doesn't reflect my biblical worldview? especially when I'm convinced that it's the biblical worldview that's brought so much brilliance and good into the world. So I'm prepared to stand for that. So in talking to my non-Christian friends, that will depend on the friend. They're made in God's image. So I meant to relate to them like that, but that can mean a whole range of different things in different settings. I'm not going to bomb them. (laughs) I'm not going to drop tracked hand grenades in their letterbox. But... um, that, that doesn't mean, yeah, I am going to have to navigate some of those issues. And it happened in the first century. Boy, it was tough to be a Christian in the first century. Because to walk away, you know, if you were a Jew, to walk away from that deep commitment to Torah, you're asking for serious trouble. And that's what got Jesus into the situation he got into from their point of view. Of course, he was intending that. But you become a Christian in the first century world as a, you know, uh, an Ephesian, and you stop going to the Temple of Artemis, people will notice. That's going to cost you something. 
and uh, that's, yeah, there's going to be tension. And I think we have to live with that. We have to stop being afraid of the tension. We're not going to be nasty about it. We're not going to dehumanize people about it. But if we back away from the tension, we're being nice matters more than trying to deal with things that, you know, that have to do with the truth. We're, we're going to be in terrible trouble ultimately. Now, David, that's a terribly inadequate answer. But I, I just think there are lots of places that I'd like to explore because I, just, I think there are some assumptions going on, not necessarily you, but just in general in our culture, I think I'm not sure about that. And I'm not saying the traditional ways of doing that were the best. I'm not saying, well, let's go back to a certain way of doing it. I just want to say, let's think more carefully about what's actually going on here. Okay. Um, sinners, they exist everywhere. They're not cultural. So what I really love about Jesus, and I think it's his absolute genius, right? Um, what's he tell us to do, right? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. What is brilliant about that is it's totally devoid of sex, social status, history, any of that stuff. It's not multicultural at all. In fact, it entirely transcends that equation by making it simply a matter of proximity. Whoever's on the bus next to me, that's my neighbor. Right? It just transcends that whole discussion. And so I think when we talk about multicultural, now hang on a minute, that could be leading us down the wrong road here. Jesus says, I'm to think of them as my neighbor. I'm going to go that way because I don't trust myself, <laughs> even though he might think it's good. So what does it mean to love my particular neighbor? Well, I have to work out what that is in that moment. Okay. What does it mean to love my neighbor? And uh, I think we'll close with that. And also maybe close with, um, for those that have heard tonight, let's be encouraged to take up our plastic lawnmower yeah. and yeah. follow Jesus. Yeah. Follow him. That's, uh, that's all for tonight. Thank you for joining us. Uh, feel free to hang out. Uh, our next grow sessions for the fall are going to be announced soon. And I uh, encourage you, if this uh, worked for you and you enjoyed it, to uh, tell others about it, invite others to come, and to recommend that it's going to be on our podcast as well to, to listen in. But uh, Rick will be around for a little bit as well if you have some other questions that you don't want to ask publicly. And if you need to go, God bless you. Uh, if you are slowly integrating or new to Living Waters, we would love to help you get connected in different ways. Thanks for joining us tonight. Let's say thanks to Rick again for his time. Thanks for your time. We'll see you soon.